Read Smart, the Bailey Gifford Prize for Nonfiction podcast. This podcast is generously supported by the Blavatnik Family Foundation. Hello, and thank you for joining us for this episode of Read Smart, the official podcast of the Bailey Gifford Prize for Nonfiction. My name is Toby Mundy, and I'm the director of the prize. Today, we're talking to the historian, author, and dance critic of The New Yorker, Jennifer Homans. Jennifer is the author of what is now widely regarded as the definitive biography of George Balanchine, Mr. B, Balanchine's 20th Century, which is shortlisted for the Bailey Gifford Prize 2023 and is published in the UK by Granta Books and in the United States by Random House. Considered by many to be the greatest choreographer who ever lived, the protagonist of Jennifer's book intersected with some of the most significant historical events of his century, the 20th century, as well as modernising ballet in dramatic new ways. Based on a decade of unprecedented research, the book tells the story of the man who the New York Times has called the Shakespeare of dancing. Welcome to the podcast, Jennifer, and congratulations on being shortlisted for the prize. Thank you for having me. So we'll get into the life of Balanchine a bit shortly, but what was it about his work that made the New York Times call him the Shakespeare of dance? Well, this is a choreographer whose, whose art was really on par with someone like Picasso or Matisse, both of whom he worked with, um, Stravinsky, also a key player in his life. His, his dances are both, you know, incredibly wide-ranging, you know, from things that are joyous and beautiful to what is probably the central theme in his work, which is loss and unrequited love. So there's a, a, a great array, and there's also a way in which he really recast the human body um, in its relationship to space and to music. And, and if you know, to put it in a sort of as brief a way as I can, he took away the tonal center, or perhaps we could say the 20th century took away the, the tonal center. And he began really with a sort of body in fragments and then rebuilt it to something that was both fragile and strong um, and incredibly vulnerable. So I think this was absolutely you know, captivating to audiences, um, among them myself. Balanchine described himself at one point in your book as um, a cloud in trousers which is an amazing description for, 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 for an amazing way for a person to describe themselves. Um, what did he mean by that? So that's a, a line from um, a Mayakovsky poem, the Russian poet. And I think what he meant by it, it was a poem that was written during the Russian Revolution. And that was a, a, a keystone moment in his life. I mean, he was born in 1904 under the last czar. And he was 10 when the First World War started and then 13 when the Russian Revolution started. So uh, a poet who was working at that time, who was also Georgian, was a, was, a, was a big force in his life. And the Cloud in Trousers poem is very, uh, is violent and a, a difficult poem. So that's kind of the background. But the, the, I think the way it functioned in his life was a way of saying, you know, there's the the cloud, which is the artist, and almost the mystic, the thing that's undescribable, the thing that can't be, that's metaphysical, that can't be pinned down. And then there's the trousers, which is the man, the everyday, the, um, you know, the earthly being who eats and drinks and um, craves, all the bodily cravings, sex, 
hunger, um, cold, hot, sensual, sensuality. So he, he was always balancing these, these two extremes, both in his, in his life and in his dances, between this spiritual side, almost a kind of um, quest for the fourth dimension, as he put it, or um, you know, he would say to the dancers, can you peel an orange with your eyes? That kind of thing, something that is un... And then this everydayness, which he wanted to get away from. He was trying to make an art that transcended the everyday. Gosh. So let's go back to his early life. As you say, he was born in 1904, but he wasn't Russian, was he? He was Georgian, is that right? I mean, he's Russian by birth, but he's Georgian both by identity and by his father's birth. So, you know, he definitely saw himself as Georgian, um, especially, I mean in his uh, his life in exile because he hated the USSR and he hated communism. He was a real um, cold warrior in that sense. And um, so the Georgian identity had to do with, and you know, this is something we can really un- relate to today and in, in many ways, uh, the national identity of, of the Georgian state uh, as opposed to its encompassment by the uh, by the Russian Empire. So, you know, his father was very involved in politics and in, in Georgian nationalism at the turn of the century. So he inherited that, and he really took that to his core. And his mother's life was in, was completely transformed by what looks like a kind of magical event by winning the lottery. What were the effects of that on the family? Yeah, this is an amazing thing. I mean, you know, it was a family of... Uh, there was, a, you know, his father was a musician... Um, and composer, his mother we know less about, but certainly not from uh, any kind of wealth or uh, standing in Russian society. And just before Balanchine was born, she wins the lottery, and suddenly they're rich. So in Imperial Russia, this means a lot. You know, it means you can buy, sort of buy stature, you can buy um, nannies and cooks and a beautiful apartment. So he's born into this kind of almost. Um, uh, fantasy wealth, which quickly disappears because his father squanders the money and they end up back where they started. So it's a moment, but a moment of, of, uh, of insight into the imperial Russian system, really, and, and the imperial Russian life of a, someone in the aristocracy, which vanishes. He always remembered, you know, that the, the, they had a, a, a carriage with a white horse, and one day the horse, you know, bucked and spilled the whole carriage over, which is kind of a little bit like what happened to them. Very Dostoevsky, and goodness me. Exactly. But that, and that sort of rather gilded childhood contrasted with his teenage years and when he was kept swept up by the revolution, the Russian Revolution. Tell us a new extraordinary hardship at that time. Tell us a little bit about that experience in Petersburg. Yeah, I mean, he was by then a student at the Tsar's Theater School, which is a boarding school. So he was not living with his family anymore. And the war, of course, and the revolution uh, threw the entire society and culture into disarray, including his family, which dispersed. And so he was, his mother was here and there around, but his. Um, but he was alone, really, at the school, and he was on the street, and he was starving, and he was 
cold. Uh, they had no heat. They, you know, it was, it, it, he had boils growing on his skin and he contracted TB and was spitting blood. This is a moment of incredible hardship that he never, ever forgot. And, and yet, you know, as he sort of came of age in that, in that moment and the years following the revolution, it became, um, in fact, one of the great sources of his art because he became involved in the radical movements, artistic movements of that time. And um, so I, I thought of it, you know, as kind of hunger and revelation. And these two things just forced together in, a, in an uncomfortable but real uh, legacy in his life. At one point, they were so hungry, he was forced to eat wild cats or stray cats. Is that right? Did I read that? Yes, that's right. And they were even known to go into the basements and, uh, you know, catch rats with their own hands if they were that hungry. So, you know, they were eating uh, coffee grind cake and stealing fish from anybody who had them or mainly from the military. Uh, they were, the, the theaters were ice cold and you could see the breath. It, as they went on to stage, if you dropped a glass of water, you know it would immediately be an ice skating rink. It's it's a it's an it's a moment that's hard to imagine, and yet is sort of seared into his his soul. He had nightmares about it for the rest of his life. Do you, do you think it changed his relationship? This experience of intense privation and hunger changed his relationship with his body and with changed his sense of the human body. Oh, completely. I mean, this is a big theme in the book because, you know, as he put it, I almost died many times. And I mean, in a way, he should have died during the revolution. He didn't have a, con a strong constitution. He did have TB. He ended up eventually after he went into um, after he, he went into exile in Europe in the 20s, he ended up in a in a Magic Mountain sanatorium in which he barely survived uh, the TB, but somehow he magically did. Um, so this idea that the body, that death is, is possible at any moment was something that he learned very early on. And he, you know, one of the things that he would say to his dancers constantly as he tried to get them to summon the energy to, for a moment in a dance, defy death and be so alive that you can't even think of that. He would say, you might be dead tomorrow. What are you saving it for? You know, don't give me everything. Give me everything. Because when you walk out this door, it might be over. Well, we might come back to the scale of the demands he made upon his dancers later. After the revolution he went into exile as you say and sort of joined the caravan and through the Austro-Hungarian Empire to Weimar Germany is that right? That's correct exactly with you know I, I try to sort of there's an overview in a way of this of this this mass exodus at this period when when empires are collapsing and the movement of refugees and people and he's part of that and so are many of the people that he ends up collaborating with so it's a kind of moment he goes to Weimar, um, he's, he's pretty much lost there until he finds his way to Paris and uh, to Serge Diaghilev, the impresario, Russian impresario, had, who had been there for some time now and was the, um, the great leader of the Ballet Russe, 
Rus. So that 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 connection, another Russian connection, uh, uh, saved him in a way. But all along the way, he's absorbing everything. I mean, this was a, his exile to Europe in the twenties was a, was a, a great education. I mean, as he put it, I walked into the room and there was Matisse and Ravel and. Uh, I didn't, he said, I didn't know who they were, but I learned. He didn't stay in Paris, did he? Why, what, what took him to the United States in the, in the mid-30s? Yeah, he left Paris in 1933, just as Hitler was coming to power. He had this way of sort of leaving these civilizations that were collapsing um, in, in a 20, very 20th century story. He left because, uh, because he was a, somebody who believed strongly in fate and chance. And I mean, this was remarkable to me that he really wasn't afraid. And this living um, in the moment, this kind of radical now that he embraced because of his own tumultuous and unstable past was, was just one of the rules he lived by. Um, and Lincoln Kirstein was an American from uh, Boston from a German emigre family, and he had sort of set himself the task of being an American Diaghilev, of bringing classical dance or dance that he thought was um, classical to the United States. And he fixated on Balanchine eventually as somebody who could help him do that. So there's this moment where basically he comes backstage or they meet at a party, um, after the performance and then agree to, to talk. And he proposes to Balanchine, come to the United States, we'll start a company. And, he, and Balanchine says, yes. So it's a big sort of another um, dive into an unknown. It's that line of Shakespeare's, I think in Coriolanus, where he says he was the author of himself. And I kept thinking that about Balanchine all the way through your book, actually. Exactly. Do you think Kirstein was in love with Balanchine? Do you think it was, I mean, I know it was a complicated and fairly distant relationship, but what do you think Kirstein's feelings with, for Balanchine were? Kirstein is the longest relationship of his life. It's not a love relationship in, this, in, in any kind of um, romantic sense at all. Kirstein was gay, but married. Uh, Balanchine was very heterosexual. There was no deep connection between them, no affinity necessarily, but they stuck by each other and they were both loyal and Kirstein didn't let go. There were many points in the years to come that they could have gone their separate ways and did for, for a moment during the Second World War, but they stayed together and you know, they were like two trees planted to the same spot. And it's a way, it's a bit, a bit of a complicated story, but Kirstein arrived himself at the idea that dance was the art form of the 20th century and that it was the place where he was going to invest all of his energy and time. And he saw very early on that Balanchine was someone who could, who also believed that. And in those early years in the United States, Balanchine was sort of moving from one coast to the other, wasn't he? Broadway on one in, on the East Coast and Hollywood on the West and encountered some extraordinary people. What did he make of um, Irving Berlin and Fred Astaire and 
Richard Rogers, people like that. You know, I think he admired all of these people. You know, he was doing Broadway because he was interested in it. He wrote songs himself. He um, composed very uh, sentimental lyrics, um, love stories, all of them. He admired them. It wasn't what he really wanted to do. These were, as he put it, commercial dances. And he was interested in eternal dances. But I think he learned a lot, especially from his, his um, experiences in Hollywood and making film. Uh, he was lucky enough to work with Greg Toland, uh, a cameraman who, who was changing cinema at the time. And his way of seeing the stage had an almost cinemagraphic quality after that. And the question of how do you guide the audience's eye to various points on a stage in time was something that I think he took a lot from cinema. He was quite a fan of Fred Astaire's, wasn't he? Oh, he thought Fred Astaire was the, the greatest dancer ever. And why? I think because he was somebody that had this kind of elevated, again, here we are in the world of trying to take dance out of the everyday to elevate it through the physical body. So you're trying to sort of achieve something. And Fred Astaire, you know, is just a delight to watch and is the consummate um, aristocrat, American aristocrat, and, and somebody who can move through dance with, with ease and, yeah, joy. I mean, he, he, he loved Fred Astaire. He never worked with him, but he did love him. <laughs> And then in 1948, this huge event in American dance and, and world dance history takes place, really, doesn't it? That he becomes the principal of, of Founds, the New York City Ballet. How did that come to pass? Yeah, this was a, a project, you know, when Lincoln Kirstein bought, brought Balanchine to the United States in 1933, they first tried to set up a, a company in Hartford, Connecticut. And that, that failed very quickly because Balanchine was kind of, where? what is this Hartford, Connecticut thing? Let's go to New York. And uh, they founded a school very easily in a way. I mean, it, it happened right away in 1934. But the company was just, they tried many times and failed and failed and failed and failed. Um, so... In 1948, they finally found somebody who believed in Balanchine as much as Kirstein did uh, at, at the New York uh, City Center, who proposed to them, would you make the small company that they were at the time called Ballet Society into the New York City Ballet? And, you know, Lincoln Kirstein said, if you do that for me, I'll give you the greatest dance company America has ever seen. And so they began. And it's not that all of a sudden the New York City Ballet was established and a, a sure thing. For years, I mean, right into the 70s, it, it, it could have fallen apart so many times. There were always budgetary issues. There were always problems. It was a struggle uh, from the start and to the finish, really. Balanchine himself is not a kind of conventional figure for a biography or a big biography as a, as a personality, is he? I mean, it seems to me that he's not, anyway. Tell us a little bit about his character, about his personality. I know that you actually did classes with him, and I want to ask you about that shortly, but what sort of person was he, was he to meet? Yeah, you know, he's a, a very elusive person. He was married five times, 
but I'm not sure anyone knew him in a kind of intimate way, except through his art. He was somebody who really lived for that. Um, I, I was in this experience of, of living with him for 10 years while I was writing the book. I mean, I, I, I talked to no one more than I talked to Balanchine in my mind. I lived with him, really, for, for most of my days. So, and I was very, very focused on trying to get into the inner life and into his, his imagination. The book charts a path really from the, the same path he charts in his life, from the real life into the what he called realer than real world of the stage. This, this, this other world that he built around himself by building the New York City Ballet. Because the thing about dance is that you can't have dance without dancers. And you can't have dance without a stage, set designers, lighting designers, you know, it's a whole apparatus. And so the founding of the New York City Ballet was also the making of an institution that would support his art. And he, he did that too. So his personality was in a way um, subsumed by all of this. He was modest. He was un, um, he knew, he knew his talent, but he was quiet, soft-spoken. He was not a, um, a tyrant, even though he was, you could say, an autocrat in the sense that everything came back to him eventually and he ran the place as he felt it should be run. He also gave people a lot of latitude. If he trusted them, he let them go. And that goes with the dancers too. So he's a kind of, um, very internal, very private. As a subject for biography, as you were saying, difficult in many ways because he purposefully destroyed a lot of his own papers. He didn't believe in the past. He believed in the present. And so he was not, as Lincoln Kirstein said when he first met him, he doesn't have a single clipping of reviews or anything like that. He's got nothing. So his papers are full of things like credit card statements and, and the correspondence that his assistants kept. And we do have some uh, very important love letters that, that show a, a, a deeply romantic side, deeply romantic, kind of tragic romantic, Romeo and Juliet side. <laughs> You quote him as saying in your book that ballet is woman, um, which is a very arresting and immediate quote. Um, what does he mean by that? Because it, it, it touches upon one of the big themes of your book, I think. Yeah, no, exactly. And he, you know, ballet is woman was a, it means many things. It means that women have bodies that are more flexible and more, uh, have more potential as a tool of art, in his view. And he really, um, he changed te technique of ballet by changing uh, how, especially how women moved. And he did that with them. It was a process that they were both involved in because it couldn't be done. You know, if the dancer is the tool, the dancer is also the master of her tool. And so the, the collaboration between them was very real. And I spent a lot of time talking to dancers about the ways that they worked with him and the give and take 
in the ways in which they, you know, as I came to see it, sculpted their bodies and changed their own physical forms. And, and then ballet as woman was also something that was very central to his own inner artistic life. It's not so much that women inspired him, it's that women were his partners in art. And, and I don't just mean women, but eroticism and the, the erotic side of a relationship with a woman and with many women. I think he loved all of the women in his company in some degree or another. And, you know, for all of the difficulties, and we can talk about those, that, that presented themselves in, in working with him, and he could be ruthless and cruel, they stayed and they always, you know, when I would interview them, so many of them, most of them would stop in the end and just say, but we loved him. So there is this element, I, I think, bet you know, between, between him and the dancers of, and, and between specific dancers, the, the women he married were all his most prized dancers at a given moment in his life. So the fact that there were five of them is in a way not surprising because he made so many dances and he couldn't really sustain a domestic relationship, a marriage as we would think of it. His marriage was the marriage to art, and the women eventually would tire of that, and mostly um, things would, would fray when they couldn't sustain his demands and dedication to making dances. That's what he was all about, and that's what love was about, and that's what women were about, and that's what dance as woman was about. It's also an idea of the eternal feminine, an old idea, a Goethe idea, a Nietzsche idea, an idea of, of the, the transcendent capabilities of, of, of femininity and, 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 of the, and of the female form. It's not an idea we think so much of these days, but it was very, very um, present in his mind, almost a Quixote Dulcinea search and quest. You said a moment ago that um, he could be cruel and demanding. He did, he did love all of his dances, but he clearly loved some more than others, didn't he? And oh, for sure. <laughs> that, that some of the behaviour today would probably be characterised as, would you think it would be fair if some of the behaviour viewed through the prism of today was viewed as coercive and controlling, or is that...? Yeah, coercive, controlling, in some cases even abusive. I mean, he... Yeah, it's such an interesting relationship that he had with his dancers because, you know, the ones that he uh, especially focused on, let's just take those for as an example, but, you know, he, he, he was very um, possessive. He needed them so much because he couldn't make his art without them. And he invested enormous amount of energy and time into helping them become who they were as dancers. And so what this could mean is, please don't have boyfriends because that will take you away from the project that we're doing together. And he was jealous. And so they would, you know, these, these are like almost cultish behaviors, you know, where there's a, a sense that they're, they're meeting their boyfriends on the corners and a block away from the theater so that he won't know that they exist. There's a, uh, a possessiveness about the body and the human form. And then weight as well. He, 
and their weight exactly exactly the the whole idea that their bodies were something that he wanted to control so if they weren't the right shape or thin enough or he wanted to see muscle and bone sounds terrible sounds kind of gruesome in a way but the idea was that he was trying to reveal the human body and you know he didn't really he didn't take into account the toll that this would take on these young women who were after all very young you know 17 18 19 some of them found they found different ways of rebelling some of them didn't they you write in your book yeah they did find ways of rebelling some of them just left that was one way to rebel others um they cut their hair, I think you said. Yeah, in one case, you know, he loved the long hair, and so she comes in with a, you know, with her her fine locks just sheared. It's it's almost an adolescent kind of relationship because they are adolescents. Yeah, these young women, and and yet they're also the objects of this extraordinary love, and and they have uh, all of them a great great desire, their own desire to dance and to perform his ballets. He always said, they love me for my ballets. And he meant that a little bit sadly. You know, they didn't love me as a man. And, and that was true, that they loved him for his dances. You mentioned earlier that sometimes there have been earlier accusations that the uh, New York City Ballet was run like a cult by Balanchine. How do you respond to that suggestion in your biography? I mean, I, I think there's some truth to that. And there, the, you know, the weight saying, just to take one example, that, that is because it's so um, visceral and we can feel it so acutely today, you know, the weight issue, you know, there was a sign up on the theater wall at one point that said, uh, to get your pay, you must weigh. And it's in Balanchine's hand. This is one of the things I found in the archives. Um, was this so extraordinary in the world of dance where contracts often specified that your body had to be in a fit shape to do dance, whatever that meant to a director at the time? Not so, but he, 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 he was very, he could be tyrannical about it. So it, it was hard. The cultishness had, was even a bigger issue though. It, it had to do with the the sense of walls being built around this artistic enterprise. So that, you know, almost if you think about it, like the theater walls, you know, he built a theater, the New York State Theater at Lincoln Center. He built a company of dancers. He built uh, a team of, of, of designers and musicians. And all of these people were engaged in his vision. And there was a feeling of a closed circle. One dancer put her arms in front of her and locked her hands. You know, either you're in or you're out. And the, the idea of these, these, there are secrets within this circle, including things like the weight and thing, you know, some ugly things, also some beautiful things, a very complicated mixed world. This world was, a, you know, I think it was cultish in the sense that it was closed and it had rituals and requirements that you had to live up to if you were going to be part of it. You are yourself a former professional dancer. You took classes with Balanchine, I think, didn't you? You danced in several of his ballets. 
how does your sense of Balanchine now contrast with your experience of him as a young younger dancer? How does your how does your younger self compare to your biographical self in your view of Balanchine? I mean, my view of him changed enormously. You know, my view of him as a as a young uh, teenage dancer at his training at his school, and then later performing his dances with um, the Pacific Northwest Ballet. And as you say, I was lucky enough to take a class with him and to study with uh, some of his his greatest uh, dancers. Um, you know, there was a way in which he was a, a sort of almost godlike figure in that world when I came into it. And we saw him as someone who, there was a mythology around him that had to do with, we don't look back, we don't ask questions, we just submit and do what the dances tell us to do. As I came to know him over the last 10 years in writing about him, just all of the, the sort of fullness of the man came out, the, difficult sides but yeah i suppose you know above all the sadness of his life there's there's a great sadness in this life somebody who was who was um able to achieve an extraordinary artistic form a sort of relentless quest for beauty and for newness in art he was really an avant-garde artist and and many of his dances that have been forgotten are strange and interesting um, he wasn't, as, as Lincoln Kirstein put it, a ballet, ballet choreographer. He was always looking for the progressive edge and how to move the art form on into the future. So he achieved all of that. But his all, you know, he was very alone. In spite of being surrounded by all of these people, he was very alone. And he was alone with his own artistic process and alone with his, his life, and he died alone. And... It's, and he had a, a lot of physical difficulties and tragedies in his life. He was, his family was back in Russia. He was alone in a deep, deep way, the way, the deep way of exile. The ways in which it, it wasn't cultish was that it wasn't the submission to a man or a certain personality or person. It wasn't. It was really the submission was to the art that they were making through him. So the, I think that's why a lot of people tolerated it and stayed because there was a sense of a, of service, and this was very important to the dancers I spoke with and to Balanchine himself. The sense of service to an art form, and in Balanchine's case, to God, because he was a very religious man. Um, so, you know, even though there's this cultish behavior, it's not, uh, you know, it's not Jim Jones. It's not like a, a person who's, who's sort of an ego. It's the opposite of that. It's a sort of loss of ego and a selfless pursuit of art that takes, at times, a very, very high toll. Towards the end of your book, you say that uh, Balanchine's best ballets were fantastic entertainments that lifted audiences into the great good humor of being alive which i thought was a wonderful line what did you what did you mean by that and that will be a very a very fitting way to conclude the conversation well i mean i was remembering partly my own experience and of the experience of being in the theater which was 
in the years when he was alive, and I was there in the 1970s, and you would leave the theater after a great performance, just feeling like everything was okay for a moment. You know, terrible things might be happening in the world, but for a moment you felt life matters, art matters. There's a way in which we were all, and it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a feeling which depends on a community being gathered. And that's, I think, what the theater was, as he put it himself. He wanted to make a cathedral of dance. Uh, it's almost a, a church and of, of art. And so, so you would leave the theater just feeling great. And the other people around you felt great. I think our audiences will feel great too at the end of this conversation. Thank you so much, Jennifer, for that. It was uh, absolutely wonderful. Um, that is, I'm afraid, all we have time for today. We'd like, as always, to thank the Blavatnik Family Foundation for its continued and generous support of this podcast. The winner of this year's Bailey Kiffer Prize will be announced at an awards ceremony at the Science Museum in London, also generously supported by the Blavatnik Family Foundation, on Thursday, the 16th of November, and will receive a cheque for £50,000. That announcement will also be live-streamed across the Bailey Gifford Prize for Nonfiction social channels. If you're interested in finding out more about the prize, you can go to our website and sign up for our newsletter, or you can visit our social media feeds on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok at BG Prize. Thanks again for listening. See you next time. Read Smart, the Bailey Gifford Prize for Nonfiction podcast. This podcast is generously supported by the Blavatnik Family Foundation.